0: Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Philip Carey. His new book is The Meaning of Protestant Theology, Luther, Augustine, and the Gospel that Gives Us Christ. It's a creative and illuminating discussion of Protestant theology that helps readers rethink their own theology and its place in the larger story of Christian thought. Philip Carey explains how Luther's theology arose from the Christian tradition, particularly from the spirituality of Augustine. Luther departed from the Augustinian tradition and inaugurated distinctively Protestant theology when he identified the gospel that gives us Christ as its key concept. More than any other theologian, Luther succeeds in carrying out the Protestant intention of putting faith in the gospel of Christ alone. Carey also explores the consequences of Luther's teachings as they unfold in the history of Protestantism. It's a great book, and we had a great discussion about it. I give you Phil Carey. Phil, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: It's funny because to be here, I'm actually in your house. So like, it's great for me to be yeah, well, here. Welcome
1: to my, my humble abode. It's great to have you here.
0: Yeah. You've written a book, The Meaning of Protestant Theology. And this is something that has been a cumulative kind of process. You've been writing on these themes about Luther, about anxiety, spirituality, And how that works. I'm wondering, how did you come to faith? Were you raised in the church? And and how does Uh, this work you do connect to your own story?
1: Oh, well, that's – I mean, that's an interesting story because like so many people, my religious story is a long journey that, well, uh, started in a place that I didn't expect. Well, that you wouldn't expect. So uh, I was raised Catholic, Um, with uh, people who resented being Catholic because that's what American Catholics are like and I wanted to learn how to be a Christian and it was at a Protestant church that people were eager to teach me that how old do you this was um, oh it was junior high school so I was like in 8th grade Um, I was wanting to be serious about my religious life in the way that a young adolescent is or, or can be and um, this was the post-Vatican II church, which was kind of adrift. This was the Pope Paul the Sixth years, and and he didn't quite know where he was going with the the post-Vatican II church, and the church didn't know how to teach people very well. Uh, to this day, there's some problems with catechizing the laity and teaching them to think like Christians. And I wanted to learn to how to think and live like a Christian, so uh, I was invited to an evangelical free church. Uh, in my hometown of Hershey, Pennsylvania, and they were eager to teach me how to be a Christian. And I, so I was glad to go there, and that's how I became Protestant. Um, that's also how I ended up uh identifying in the with the kind of evangelical movement in America uh, in one of its more moderate and reasonable forms. Um, so it, it formed me as a Christian, but it also didn't leave any of the kind of wounds that sometimes uh, are left – by an experience in a more fundamentalist kind of church.
0: I, I'm curious, were you just a particularly spiritually sensitive type of kid? I mean, because I'm sure lots of other people thought, we don't give a damn that we're not getting catechized. Let's go. Let's get out and do our thing. I mean, what was it? Were, were, you, were your parents very spiritual? Or was, it, or was it just your own disposition? Like you were interested in, in weighty things?
1: I was interested in weighty things. I was the kind of serious adolescent who read a lot of deep books and thought of myself as a deep thinker, which I wasn't yet, but, but I was heading in that direction. And, you know, now I'm a philosophy professor because this is what I do for a living. Um, And I'm more relaxed about it than I used to be, but I was a very serious young fella. And um, I I needed a church that would take spiritual aspirations seriously and be serious about teaching me, yeah, how to think and feel like a Christian.
0: In your writings... It's clear to me that you spent a lot of time around folks who have an understanding of faith and a kind of practice of spirituality that, that, that you think is anxiety-producing, fitful, is kind of disconnected from what I think you would call the great tradition of the church. Right. So is that, is that have those experiences been at the foundation of some of your own developing theological work as you became a theologian? Yes.
1: Um, I, I was in this evangelical free church, which is this kind of moderate wing of the uh, evangelical wing of Protestantism in America. And like a lot of evangelicals, I sort of outgrew that. But again, without wounds. So I've never had that ex-fundamentalist bitterness that you you probably know about. Um, I ended up becoming an Episcopalian. That took a little while, but uh, I landed in the Episcopal Church uh, and now – I I identify myself as an Anglican for various reasons. We'll leave Episcopalian politics out of it for now. Um, But my journey involved really that discovery of the great tradition, of the liturgy, of the sacraments. Um, I could not now be happy at a church that didn't have a regular Eucharist uh, because that's where I find Christ. Um, not in my experience or my emotions, but in bread, because that's where God's word says he is. And I want to put my faith in God's word alone and not in my experience, because my experience is not about my experience, it's about Christ. So I need a word that gives me Christ. And that's what led me to the the thoughts of this book, too.
0: Now, when you say God's word alone, there's a kind of evangelical Protestantism out there that sort of says, hey— I believe the whole thing's inerrant. I even believe the leather is genuine. But when you say God's word alone, it sounds like from your writing and and your own teaching, you mean something more like God speaking to us in a way that is meant to give us peace, assure us of his love, that, that as sinners we can find redemption. This is not, you're not talking about sort of necessarily memorizing. Bible verses, although it might come through a recited Bible verse, but you're talking about this sort of word that comes outside of yourself?
1: Absolutely. So one of the key theses of the book is that the gospel that gives us Christ is a sacramental gospel, which is to say it comes to us externally. Sometimes it quite literally comes to us in sacraments. So uh, when when a, a pastor says, this is my body given for you, speaking for Christ in the performance of the sacrament. That's the gospel. That's Christ giving himself to us. And it's coming to us from outside. We hear it with our ears. Uh, it comes to us in bread. And the wonderful thing, though, is that because it's external, this word can use the word you in a way that includes me. right? This, you know, So it's Christ himself— Yesterday, on Sunday, Christ himself said to me and to everyone in the congregation, this is my body. It is given for you. Now, the Bible itself by itself doesn't say that. It authorizes that because the word of Christ is in the Bible and and tells us to say this and do this. So when we do this in obedience to the biblical word, we have Christ's word in the present in an external form, and I don't have to sort of just sort of find out what principle of the Bible applies to me. I can hear Christ himself say the word you in a way that includes me. And that's how the gospel gives us Christ in person.
0: So it's almost like in the remembrance, we're literally remembered, where we're, 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 there's a sort of a, a making it real Uh, In a way that's not dependent on our experience of it being real, uh, but is outside of us.
1: That's very important, yes, especially for Luther. So something happens in the sacrament, whether you believe it or not. Luther is a Catholic small c on this point. Uh, He thinks, and I think he's right, that the flesh of Christ is present in the bread because he promised, because he said so. Whether you believe it or not. But of course... It will do something different for you if you believe it than if you don't. So the difference between faith and unbelief matters, but the body is there whether you believe it or not. Um, You know, Pilate had Christ's body up on a cross, and he didn't believe in Christ as Savior, but he had Christ's body. It didn't do him much good. He, He violated it. So also, we can violate Christ's body, but it's there whether we believe it or not. And that externality is something that strengthens our faith, I think.
0: In the beginning of this book, you lay out with an elegant simplicity kind of your thesis. Say, look, there's these three principles. This is how the book works. First, mm-hmm. there's at the heart of the Christian faith is what you call the divine carnality, right? That God came down in the flesh. Uh, yeah, Gerhard Forda wrote this great little book called Where God Meets Man, <laughs> sort wow. of say, saying, like, you know, the problem is, you know, you have these books, we are, songs like We Are Climbing, Jacob's Ladder which always emphasize us climbing up instead of us receiving where God came down. And then you say, then this story of the divine carnality catches fire in the ancient Mediterranean gets mixed up with some Platonism ultimately in its sort of purest form or distilled form through St. Augustine. And what you have is the beatific vision, the idea that the good, the true and the beautiful is, is is, it can be reached, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, through, Mm -hmm. Christ who sort of is the one who bids us to go on the divine ascent or something. Right. And then you say the corrective to this tradition, that Hey, Augustine didn't get it all wrong. And the Platonism helped explain how you can have a God who you can't see and a Christ who you can see and who can come to us in materiality. But sort of the thing that really the tradition needed it had to wait, like, uh, you know, like it had to wait centuries for to really, uh, help it along the way a little bit. And, and, in a, a young German monk, Martin Luther, who figured out how to sort of do justice to the first two points, uh, who, to really bring out the divine carnality and take some of what he inherited from Augustine and sort of help the first point be more important uh, than the beatific vision stuff.
1: Right. Um, I think that Luther was not doing something radically new because the last thing Luther wants is to, to create a different gospel than the one preached um, by the church ever since the apostles. But he was giving an articulate, um, reflective understanding of what has always happened in the hearing and teaching of the gospel. And he's, he's done that better, I think, than anybody before him. And it was necessary because of a whole range of things happening. And it had to do with what went wrong with that second element, so the first element is the, that divine carnality, the descent of God into flesh. The second element is the spiritual ascent going up, um, which ended up you know, climbing Jacob's ladder. But that meant that if you weren't a monk, if you were an ordinary Christian, you, you got pretty darn anxious about whether you were making progress or whether you might secretly be in a state of mortal sin. And how would you know? And And so you had all these terribly, terribly anxious people. Um, In the 16th century that Luther ended up speaking to by saying, look, it's not about you climbing up to heaven. It's about God in heaven climbing down to you. Christ is not your way to God. Christ is God's way to you. And I've got good news for you. He's already come to you. He, he comes to you every Sunday in the Eucharist. He came to you in your baptism. His, the, his word, his gospel is giving himself to you. So, um, just to pick up on that, that descending and ascending contrast, uh, two things I, which I just love. One is when Zacchaeus, remember, is climbing up the tree to see Jesus, the first thing that Jesus says to him when he lays eyes on him is, get down from there, Zacchaeus, right away, get down. I'm thinking, yeah, Jesus... It's basically saying, hey, I want to eat supper with you, Zacchaeus, but how can I do that when you're up there and I'm down here? You got to come down. Um, Another version of this, uh, less about going up and going down, but but still this this journey theme is an old saying that the gospel is one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. And I think that's a near miss, but it is a miss because um, the gospel is one beggar giving another beggar the bread of life. Because if you just tell someone where to get bread and they're starving to death, they may die of starvation before they get to the bread. So you've got to give them the bread of life right there in person. And that, I think, happens every time the Eucharist is properly uh, performed and distributed. That's one beggar literally giving another beggar the bread of life.
0: So in contemporary, in the contemporary American landscape, right, you've got people in progressive churches Mm. who... When they talk about the gospel, it usually equates to being on on the side of the right cause. And actually, oftentimes, say in the evangelical church, it's the same thing. It's a very different cause, right. but it's not something that that says done right. You you talk in your book about how the, the law Luther's understanding of the law of God which uh, kind of accuses us and also restrains us. It tells us, you know, it's like a stop sign. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's not the thing that brings the deep spiritual transformation of, say, the Jean Valjean and Les Miserables, right? It's it's the gospel that does that. And and the law says, do, the gospel says, done. It's been done by Christ. And yet, it seems like most of the American church, you'll hear a lot more do than done.
1: Yes, yes. Um, A whole lot of folks think that the gospel is, say, instructions about how to get saved. One beggar telling him, another beggar, here's what you do to get to the bread. Well, anything that has the form of, here's what you do, is law, not gospel, and because nothing we do saves us. Now, what we do can be very useful for our neighbor, and that's one of the reasons why God's law commands it, right? What we do does not save us, but it can be really good for our neighbor, so we should do it. But if what we want, what we're longing for is salvation and the presence of God, then we need to hear not what we do, but what... God does. And that's what the gospel does. It doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't tell us how to get saved. It tells us what Christ has done to save us.
0: Um, you know, this
1: is my body. It's given for you. That's the gospel.
0: What's interesting in your book, one of the many interesting things is I think you have this great treatment of Platonism, which I think is, yeah. is, is, is somebody could, somebody. I was telling somebody about your book, somebody at my church, and they said, is it something, you know, uh, the uninitiated could read. I said, absolutely. I, I said, I, I think the section on Platonism is one of the best short treatments. Mm. If you wanted to learn more about it, you know, it would be a great starting point. But you, you go from Plato to Augustine and it seems like Augustine and and you're a critical fan of it. I mean, you're not, this isn't Augustine bashing. And yet you're saying, Hey, Augustine did so much important, helped us uh, along with many of the patristic thinkers integrate, uh, you know, head and heart of the faith, the story uh, with intellectual rigor and how to make sense of all things being true. And yet there's a little more, it seems, do than done in Augustine in Mm -hmm. the sense of the soul's ascent to God. Christ is one who can show you the way. He he doesn't so much come down and and be, it's not heaven coming down and dwelling among mortals. It's, he's he's shown the way he's the trailblazer and if yes. and, and if you put if you trust him it's going to take some humility but faith will give way to true knowledge and true understanding and and you'll get the beatific vision that you know you wanted in Plato's cave
1: right right so let's yeah let's parse out some more of that yes um in the platonist tradition your goal is to have this beatific vision now that that phrase comes from uh, later catholicism but What it means is something that's already, I think, talked about a great deal in Plato. Um, it's the vision of the mind's eye. It's the vision of your intellect. And it's beatific, which means it makes you ultimately happy. It makes, it's, it's the ultimate source of happiness when you get to see the truth with your mind. Um, I think it's an experience that we all have had uh, a little bit of. You know, imagine being in a math class. You're, you're working on a proof. You don't quite understand it. You, you believe it. So you start with faith, right? You put faith in what your teacher tells you. You write down the formula. You work on it. You don't quite understand it. And then all of a sudden, something clicks. You get it and you say, aha, now I see it. Now, what are you seeing in that moment? Plato and I think Augustine think that you're seeing an eternal truth. And you're seeing it not with the physical eyes, but with the eyes of your mind. And you're not merely imagining it the way you might imagine a a triangle on a chalkboard or, or remember something. This is seeing something that's eternal, unchanging, a truth that's in the mind of God. It's a little tiny glimpse of the mind of God. Now, imagine that your mind ends up seeing the truth that contains all that is immutably and eternally true. That's seeing God. That's the beatific vision. We're a long way from that. So it's a long journey there. And then the surprise in Augustine's Christianity is that the way to get there is Christ. Christ is the way as well as the truth. As the truth, he's the goal we're getting to. As the way, he is the the path. But he is our way to God. So to go back to Plato, it's a lot like climbing out of a dark cave up into the light where the light is initially too bright for us to see. It's going to take a long time before we train the eyes of our mind to see the light of truth. And Christ is part of the process of purifying the mind in the body of Christ because it's a, it's a joint effort. It's, it's it's what the church is for. And it purifies the mind by virtue and, and good works and especially by love, loving the right thing, loving God uh, above all, um, with your whole heart, mind, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, all that trains your mind to see God in that beatific vision. So you, so it's like Christ is leading you out of the, the, the dark cave into the light. Now, that's not good enough, right? From a Lutheran standpoint, wait a minute, have you forgotten that Christ is the sun that we are longing to see, the S-U-N, right? The, we're not just climbing out of a dark cave to see the sun, the sun— God himself, the eternal truth, has come among us and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. It's as if the sun comes down into the cave and shines so brightly that we can behold the glory of God here in this dark cave which is the world of flesh and birth and death. Because we can see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So that descent is what I think Augustine doesn't do justice to, and Luther does.
0: Yeah, and one thing that I was struck by in your book is that you point out something so subtly, almost in a side remark, but how this idea of faith seeking understanding, I believe in order that I may know or understand the way that's read today is, is, is epistemically or something, how we know in the sense of uh, there are certain things you have to sort of believe first in, in order to see a new way, you know, and, mm-hmm. and and you're saying that's not what Augustine means. He means, you believe first, right? Like, just like in the cave, if you saw these little uh shadows, right? right. They they would, it, it, but then when you get outside the cave, you realize that the shadows, these little figures that were casting shadows are really carved images that look like lions and trees <laughs> and that lions and, tr- and trees are really, you know, brighter, you know, fuller than that and three-dimensional. And really the right. thing that lights it all up is the sun. And so it's, I believe, I have faith so that I can later get understanding. I can move right. on to understanding. It's not like a new, the faith reorders what it means to know in whole new ways. Yeah. It's, 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 it's the beginning step because of our frailty that we're not far along the journey. Right. And then it gives way to understanding. when we have the understanding, we don't need faith anymore. Right. Augustine explicitly
1: says that understanding replaces faith. Faith is the beginning, but it is not the foundation, Right? In a foundation, the foundation's still there when you build the house, right? And that's the usual understanding of faith seeking understanding nowadays. But faith seeking understanding is a motto that goes back to Augustine. And in Augustine, the way faith seeks understanding is that faith desires something that's more than faith. Um, You know, you start by believing what your teacher tells you, and eventually you see it for yourself. Once you see it for yourself, you don't need your teacher anymore. You don't need to remember the stuff in your math notebook if you've actually understood it. You can reproduce that out of your own head now because you've seen it. You've seen it for yourself. I'm thinking that the knowledge of God is not like that because God comes to us as a person. And that's not how you know persons. It's a good model for how you learn mathematics, but it's not how you learn who a person is. You learn who a person is in two different ways fundamentally, I think. First, you get to know their story. And the Bible tells God's story. And second, you have to listen to what they have to say for themselves. And that's why persons can give themselves to be known in their words and especially in their promises. So the the key uh, example of this is, is a wedding vow, right? Where one person gives themselves to be known to another, and then the other returns the the, the promise. and, And they, they, they promise to be husband and wife to one another. So, God makes a promise that's like a wedding vow, and that's all the way back in the book of Exodus. You know, you will be my people. I will be your God. That's a, that's a wedding vow. That's God's promise that you and I are in it just together. Israel, you are my people, and, and I forever will be your God. That's who I am. So the promise tells you who God is and gives you God as your Savior. The, the gospel does the same thing. It promises us Christ, and it gives us this bridegroom. Uh, in the promise. And that's a very different way of knowing than this kind of mathematical model where you leave faith behind, because you never, you never outgrow faith. You never outgrow believing in the promise by which this person gives themselves to you. You do end up seeing more because you see that this person keeps their word, right? And we do get to see over time and in the eschaton, in the kingdom of God, that God keeps his word. But that never means a sort of outgrowing faith. It always means deepening our grasp of the promise that God keeps in Christ.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you often hear in contemporary critical studies and stuff th- this fear of sort of totalitizing the other or controlling the mm-hmm. other. And it, it seems to me this sort of model of how we know a, a God and any other person leads to a sort of corollary ethic of or, or way of thinking where i are love is the opposite of control right? And, so, right and so if you really want to love someone and know them you have to give up control just just as yeah. if in faith you know so much of of our own journey in the lutheran kind of gospel you you lay out is giving up control uh, giving up control yeah. of your own anxieties of your own uh, thoughts about yourself to see to god's thoughts about yourself and and that's it's beautiful if you learn that lesson it probably makes you a, a nicer person to be around. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: that worry about totalizing is a very modern worry. It's not really Augustine's worry or Luther's, but it's a good worry to have in our time. And I think Luther provides a very powerful corrective to that, especially if you think, well, you know, this is how we know persons in general. This is, you cannot know who someone is if you're not willing to let them tell you who they are. Um, You can maybe see through a liar, right, someone who's lying to you, you can sometimes tell, but I think that's not a good model for how you know persons, right? The model for how you know persons should be how you know a good person, someone who's trustworthy, someone that you want to be married to, Uh, and that means you have to listen. So I think, yeah, there's no totalization in Luther's picture. Um, To give Augustine credit, what he's thinking of is this love that leads us to to love the truth— and the truth that he loves is another name for God, right, because God is truth for Augustine over and over again. He, had, he simply uses the word truth as a name for God. And the truth is far vaster than we could ever control. And love for Augustine means, first of all, being attracted to that truth, and second of all, being united to it. But in being united to that truth, we're united to something far vaster than we could ever have under our control. Um, the modern Worry is that that we're we 're so into control that we yeah that we end up reducing everything to stuff that we can put on our own little theoretical boxes um, I think that 's a distinctively modern worry, and um, the whole ancient Christian tradition uh, up to and including the Reformation is a good uh, c- uh, counterweight to that
0: so in your book we, we, you lay out divine carnality and Augustine and this tension that is worked out in the first several centuries, the Christian church. And then, you know, there's this kind of synthesis that, that, that evolves. And, and you take us to Luther who has inherited this tradition and is a young lawyer, uh, Uh like he and Augustine, right? A young rhetorician, the young lawyer. Uh, and he's caught in a thunderstorm Uh and he says to St. Anne, look, if I get out of this alive, I'll be a monk. I mean, which you would say, I mean, he could have just said, I'll make a pilgrimage. I mean, he went all in, uh, you know, uh, go big or stay home. And, and Luther winds up and he's the kind of the smartest guy in the room. He's the most intense guy in the room by most accounts. Yep. And he winds up going with these more observant Augustinian monks. Right. As opposed to the less observant, but he finds these people like, well, they're just more punctilious in their external observance, but you know, it's like they they miss the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you you you, you yeah, you know, you you don't kill your brother, but you say Raka, You're angry at him, and 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 the law, the space of intention, you're corrupted. You don't even care, and so you get this sort of young Luther who yeah. is has seen through some of the self righteousness that the medieval practice of his time can produce, and yet has. No corrective other than to sort of beat himself up. <laughs> I mean yes. in some sense you talk about the early Luther thinks, well, you know, the more the way you be Christian is you can you keep beating up your self righteousness. And when you're really beat to a pulp and you don't really have much left and you think, gosh, I'm duplicitous, I say one thing, I do the other, want the other. If you can stay there, you might have a chance of getting to heaven. If you if if, if you don't much go past there, you'll get the Christian journey down. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah the The young Luther, in his early years as a monk, is very explicit. The way to be justified by faith alone is to hate yourself to really seriously hate yourself the way you would hate your worst enemy and sincerely wish that you 're damned Now he actually says this right just like you, you you take your worst enemy and wish that he were damned forever, you should wish this for yourself, and then God will justify you wow, right? (laughs) This justification by self-hatred. And he already calls that faith alone because it's putting faith in God's word of accusation. So the early Luther does not have a notion of gospel, does not have a notion of this gracious, kind promise that gives you Christ as your savior. Instead, the, the, the even the gospel is, is fundamentally an accusation for the early Luther.
0: I wish I could hear like a young, a, a young Donald Trump converted by a young Luther. <laughs> I'm the, I hate myself the most. There's nobody that can hate themselves more than me.
1: <laughs> well, oddly enough, that's pretty much what young Luther was trying to do. Right, he was trying to be to hate himself more than anybody else because, as you say, he's the most intense person in the room. He must have been such a huge personality, and he's throwing this huge personality into the project of just penitence. Right, one hundred percent, all in penitential life, and take that from merely just you know, hating sin to hating yourself as sinner to so thoroughly rejecting and hating yourself that God has nothing more to hate and he's going to justify you. So he's trying to get all these other monks to realize, oh, you know, just following the rules really, really, in a really observant way isn't going to save you. You've got to have this inner transformation of your heart, and that means you're going to really have to be serious about penitence, really get serious about hating yourself. It's a really long struggle, and you guys are way behind on this. You don't hate yourself nearly enough. So that was the message in the early Luther.
0: I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, after your evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it? to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the Thank You Roll Call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben Hart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conauer... Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlan, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Crest, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stahlsworth, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You talk about how, for the mature Luther, right, the, the law, right, has a couple of uses. It, it it convicts us of our sin. It also can restrain the flesh. I mean, you know, right. but its problem is, you know, you, you can make a law against stealing, right, which might cause people not to steal, but it will never speak to the avarice or entitlement that makes them think they can just appropriate other other people's property it, it requires an inside out transformation right and so for for a mature Luther the gospel will come in and sort of you know it, the law isn't bad it's just that it's powerless to give what it demands. You know, exactly. only, only grace can make us lovers of God and others, which is what the law demands of us. But the early Luther, it sounds like, just has those two functions of the law. <laughs> it yes. can restrain and accuse. And, 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 and you say it's a sort of, it, it, it's a Luther with a great understanding of the law's accusation without a gospel. And it's a, it's a pretty dark Luther. It's a very dark Luther.
1: I think what happened is that something went seriously wrong in the Augustinian legacy that Luther had inherited. So Augustine already is very clear that the law cannot inwardly change us. In a very influential treatise of his called On the Letter and the Spirit, he says the letter of the law, and the law is always fundamentally a letter, it's an external thing. It can only teach us what we have to do. It can't give us the transformed heart that does it gladly and with love. The law can't give us love. It can say, you know, don't kill, don't steal. But it can't give us the love that makes, it, makes us glad to, to, to do those things or not do those things. So what you need is grace. And Augustine's response to this need for, for grace is to say you pray for it. So the law comes in and it teaches you that you really can't do what you need to do to be saved. And then you pray for God's help, which is God's grace, which over the long haul transforms you and leads you into the beatific vision. Now, the problem is that all you've got is prayer. And if you're a sinner praying for grace, well, sinners don't deserve grace, right? Grace always comes as this undeserved gift. And Augustine is convinced that if you're a sinner praying for grace, God is going to be merciful and he'll give you grace. But that conviction that, well, of course God gives grace to sinners, becomes more and more difficult to believe in.
0: You you even point out something that's interesting. You say that Luther— It says that, you know, because he's talking, this younger Luther is the incurvature of self, right? We're we're self-centered. So even if we want God, we don't really want God for any reason other than uh, to use God and be selfish. So he kind of takes this thing in Augustine that's a good thing, that eventually if if God heals our will and we come to love the true, the good, and the beautiful, the source of it all that's God that's Luther thinks well no, because we're so messed up we can't even even our desire for God is some even our desire is, for is God a form is of hating God and and you wanted to use him and and, right. and, and 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 you you said this is uh, again a tortured Luther
1: <laughs> it's a very tortured Luther even our desire for God is a desire to use God or even our desire to enjoy God which Augustine thinks is, is what uh, happiness in heaven really amounts to even the desire to enjoy God is fundamentally selfish therefore it's fundamentally wrong so nothing in our hearts is right even our love for God. Um, so here we are praying for grace and we're praying for grace selfishly because we want to be saved. So that's wrong. That shows us we're sinners, right? We want to be saved. That shows us how wrong we are. Yike, right? What do you do? There's really nothing you can do other than hate yourself. Um, so that's, that went seriously wrong. And what had to, to change for Luther is that you had to do something, you had to have something more than just praying for grace, For the early Luther, you prayed for grace by penitence and and confessing your sins and, and humbly admitting that you were wrong and God is right. But you needed something more than just a prayer for grace. You needed a word that could give you grace. And what happened that changed everything and that created Protestantism is Luther discovered a word of God that gives the grace it signifies. A word of God that, that functions like a sacrament. It's an external word, which is an external sign, that gives the thing it signifies. And what it signifies is, first of all, uh, forgiveness of sins. He, his first discovery of this happened when he was thinking about the sacrament of penance. And the word of absolution in the sacrament of penance is, I absolved you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Luther came to the realization, wait a minute, I'm supposed to believe that's true. Because it's based on the promise of Christ. Whatever you absolve on earth is absolved in heaven. So that's Christ's own promise. If I don't believe that my sins are forgiven, then I'm calling Christ a liar. So I have to believe that God is giving me grace. I have to believe that because otherwise Christ is a liar and he's not a liar. So wait a minute. I can't believe that God hates me anymore. I can't believe that I'm supposed to hate myself anymore. I'm supposed to believe in forgiveness. So the the sacramental word gives the thing it signifies. And then that expands from there. It starts with the sacrament of penance, but it expands to the whole gospel story. The whole gospel story is like a sacrament. Luther actually says this. It's like a sacrament. Its whole purpose is to give you Christ. So you, you are not allowed to doubt that Christ is yours and that salvation is yours. So instead of praying for grace, you have a promise of grace that comes from God. Right? Praying for grace is our word. It's, it's us saying stuff. The promise of Christ is God saying stuff. And God's saying nothing less than, this is my body. It's given for you. I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So all of a sudden, I have to believe that I have Christ in salvation. Why? Because I prayed for it? No. Because Christ has promised, and he has given himself to me in his word.
0: In traditional theological categories people sometimes talk about the person of Christ like oh yes and you talk about this how the church fathers helped hammer out this how the how the sort of immaterial god the god that's not made of material substance can can take on flesh and this took a lot of time yeah several uh, centuries the yeah. person of the redeemer right versus the work of the redeemer mm-hmm. the the divine descent the divine carnality for us now it seems to me that you could have a pretty high view of the person of Christ right think he's really not just uh, part God or, 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 yeah. or a really super angel or something. You can have a really high view of the person. He's one with the father and not a high view of the work. Like mm-hmm. he, 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 he's, and it's almost, you see this in Augustine, like it's, yeah. it's, he's a pathfinder. Uh, uh, he yeah. is a revealer. He's not, but in Luther, it's sort of, you can't pull the person work. You can't have a high, you yeah. got to have the whole thing. And so he doesn't, he's not just one with the father. He doesn't just accomplish the possibility of us being saved. He brings us our salvation. He, he, union with him, yeah. uh, it, it changes everything. Yeah, and, and that seems to me something different and resonant in Luther uh, right. th- th- that you're saying is 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 a big improvement in the tradition.
1: Yeah, I think Luther gets this stuff from various parts of the tr- of the tradition, but more from uh, Cyril of Alexandria and other Greek fathers than he does from Augustine, because Augustine thinks of Christ as the way. Now, now Augustine has a very robust uh, incarnational theology, right? Jesus Christ is God in person, in the flesh. There's no question of that for Augustine. He is both fully human and fully God. Absolutely, no question. But it's, his humanity is just the way. Uh, his divinity is the goal. So the union we desire is union with God. Union with Christ's flesh is not yet arriving at the goal. For Luther, union with Christ in the flesh is arriving at the goal. Uh, so the, the person and the work end up becoming t- more tightly bound up with each other, because what salvation is for Luther is taking hold of Christ in the flesh uh, by faith alone. Salvation simply means that Christ is yours. Christ incarnate is yours, and that happens by faith alone. Um, that's uh, strikingly different, I think, from Augustine, for whom Christ's flesh is just the way, not the goal. Um, and the difference, of course, is that for Luther, Christ's flesh is how God comes to us and gives himself to us. Now, that has huge implications for Protestantism later, because for Luther, justification by faith alone is not just having Christ's merits imputed to us, it's having Christ in person. What faith does in Luther is it takes hold of Christ's in person, God in the flesh, and that's what saves us, is having Christ.
0: And now you say something interesting. He got it from some other places. I mean, yeah. you're the, being yeah. saved, being justified by faith alone uh-huh. isn't being justified by understanding it any more than, you know, people ate food and were nourished before there were theories of vitamins you and bet. things like that, that. That people. So, you know, there are people who, in, in Luther's mind, I'm sure throughout the history of the church, You know, through themselves on God's mercy alone, we're not self-righteous. It's, it's, but Luther's sort of coming on and explaining how he thinks it works. Yep. And actually, if you understand this, when you're in a bind, when you're anxious, yeah. when you're exactly. actually, it, 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 you don't have to have this to be safe, but it, it could help. It can really help right. if you understand right. the way this wonderful exchange works. It, it, can, under, it can really, right. when your back's against the wall, it can alleviate some of the pressures and anxieties.
1: Yeah, Luther is my favorite theologian for when your back's against the wall. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because um, one, one of the anxieties is, do I really have enough faith? Is my faith really true saving faith? And that, that's a Calvinist worry. Uh, lots of Protestants have it. Am I really a Christian? When I look at my life, do I really see a Christian life? Do I really see the evidence that real, true Christian saving faith is in my heart? And Luther's answer is, no, no, you don't have true saving faith. Your faith is not a faith in faith. You can't rely on faith. Luther says, don't rely on faith. Rely on the word of God alone. That's what faith does. So every time you discover what an unbeliever you are, which happens all the time, um, you know, every time you sin, it comes from unbelief, Luther says. So whenever you discover what an unbeliever you are, well, then confess your unbelief and go back to the gospel. Right? You keep going back to square one, and for Luther, that's especially your baptism, um, because Luther doesn't make a big deal out of conversion as an experience. Right? We we have we can have dozens of conversion experiences. That's fine. None of them saves us. Our baptism saves us because that's where the gospel comes to us and says, "I baptize you." And means me, and that's Christ speaking. So you go back to the baptism, that's how you know you're a Christian. When your back's against the wall, when, uh, for Luther, it's, it's actually the devil whispering in your ear and saying, hey, you're not really a Christian, you know how, how you've sinned, you know how you don't really, truly, in the depths of your heart, believe in Christ, you know it, I know it, come on, you might as well just give up and despair. You say, no, devil, go away, I believe in my baptism. Right? I've been baptized, right, and I don't believe well enough, but that's not what matters. What matters is that God will keep his word. And Luther has these fights with the devil in the evening all the time. He wakes up in the middle of the night, and his thoughts are running like crazy. And, and he's accusing himself, and he says, go away, go away. I'm going to believe the word of God instead. And that, I think, is the way to fight the spiritual battle of anxiety, is keep on turning to that external word and keep on trusting in the truth of God, not in your own faith.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking like if we're in the zombie apocalypse and the walking Dead or something and there are zombies <laughs> chasing us and it's a winter scene and, and the only way we can escape the zombies is if we, if we run out across a frozen lake. Right. Uh-huh. It, I mean, some of us may have a lot of faith that the, the, that the, the ice will hold. Some of us might have zero faith, but when we're all on the ice, it doesn't matter uh-huh. who has a lot of faith in the ice holding or who has almost no faith as they're running across it, that it's the ice that's holding not not our faith in the ice holding right
1: right and um, and that's uh, crucial for sacramental theology right uh Christ is there in the bread says Luther whether you believe it or not and that's crucial because if it depended on your faith then how could you be sure you had Christ right um uh there are days when i really feel like I, I believe in jesus and there are days when i really feel like i don't and if it depended on my decision of faith or something or or my conversion experience then I'm, it, this, this is not reliable, right? Um, I think we make decisions for Christ all the time, and we make decisions against Christ all the time, and um, those are all things we do, and nothing we do saves us, and if we believe in Christ, nothing we do damns us, but we have to put our faith in christ's word right so what what happens is it's, it's not like we don't have faith it's that our faith is built up by being put by putting our faith in christ's word alone. And that gives us the freedom also to confess our unbelief, which strikingly strengthens our faith. It strengthens my faith rather than undermines it to confess that I'm not the believer that I should be. So I get to confess my unbelief and put my faith in Christ's word alone, and that becomes the, the structure of the Christian life. Rather than this anxious attempt to prove to myself, oh, I'm really a Christian. I'm really living the Christian life. That shows that I really have true faith, um, except on the days when I don't. And then I really got to try harder to really show that I'm a Christian. And if I really have the experience of, of, of you know, and, and I have to have to right experience as well as do the right things and have the right experience in my heart. And if I don't, then maybe I'm damned.
0: Yeah, and it's it's interesting too, as you describe, Luther, right now in your book, I think on one level it takes subjective experience less seriously and in another way more seriously because people for whom you know the way they get their assurance when their back's against the wall is to look inwardly. You probably can't be real honest with yourself because if you're real honest with yourself, then you know how complex and ambivalent you are. So you kind of usually you clean it up a little bit. To, yeah. Whereas w- with Luther, you know it, Luther's great if you really want to get good work in therapy because you can really talk about your your libidinal rages and your frustrations and your why and why you know you're you're such a tortured person because you know that stuff is not what saves you or assures you. It's Christ. And and so you're actually free to to work on that stuff as opposed to have it try to do spiritual work for you. You're free to work on
1: that stuff. You're free to confess your faults. And you're also free to love your neighbor for your neighbor's sake instead of for your sake, right? Because one of the traps that you can fall into here with this kind of of non-Lutheran anxiety is you want to show what a great Christian you are, Because you want to show that you have true saving faith. And true saving faith results in works of love. Everybody agrees on that, right? Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Augustine, we all agree on that, right? True saving faith will will result in works of love. So you've got to prove that you're really a Christian and really have faith by how much you love. And that means you love your neighbor for the sake of yourself. You're loving your neighbor for in order to reassure yourself. And that makes love harder to do because...
0: Love of your neighbor is not for your sake, it's for your neighbor's sake. Right. And true love, you, it, once you're thinking about it self-interestedly, right, it, yep. it dissipates. Like it's, you know, you see your spouse and they've had a rough day and you decide, you know, normally, you know, you cook the food and, and they say, you know, do the dishes and you do the dishes because, you know, they, they just don't need the do dish, dishes today. At the moment you say, wow, that was a sensitive thing I did. That's where the good work disappears, right? Because yeah. it it's sort of, you know, real love is is... Is, is, is it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You actually yep. are freed up for the other. Yep. And, and so in that moment, you know, it, 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 with Luther's gospel, and it really takes root, you actually think about yourself a little less because right. you're freed up from the tyranny of, of, of your own anxieties and, and exactly. spiritual torturous you know, right. thoughts.
1: So you're no longer thinking, oh, I'm such a sensitive person. It's like, oh, my wife needs this. Good. Well, you know, I'm her husband. This is what I do. Right. This is what, what, what this is what she needs, So let's let's do this. Right. Um, and you ask a different question. So if you're driven by the anxiety, the question you ask is, "Am I really loving like a Christian? Is this really true Christian love that I'm experiencing and showing? And I'm, I'm really showing the love of Christ? Am I really doing that?" That's a lousy question because the answer to that is no. Right. Your Christian love is inadequate. But suppose you're asked the question, "Is this really helping?" is this really doing good? Is this really what my wife needs? Oh, it's what my wife needs? Okay, then that's what I do. So then you're asking a different question. It's a question about her, about the about the person you're loving, instead of about you. And, and that sort of untangles the anxieties and sort of unbends us so we're no longer bending back to ourselves and saying, am I really a loving Christian? You're You're unbending and looking at the person you love and saying, hmm, what What needs to be done to help this person? What What do I need to help my wife here? Oh, that's what she needs. Okay, that's what I'll do. And uh, so being justified by faith alone frees you to love for its own sake, for the sake of your neighbor, rather than for your sake.
0: My friend, my, my friend David Zoll, who ah. writes uh, for, he's the editor of Chief at Mockingbird, runs that organization, just came out with a book called Seculosity, which has been very well reviewed. And basically his theory is that the more secular we get, we don't get any less religious. We just develop, you know, the new religion becomes the gym or mm. parenting or politics. And he says, you know, we develop our own little L laws they don't be the law of God, but they're, it's virtue signaling or am I a good enough helicopter parent or, or organic this or that? And they accuse us this, you know, in, in the same way the law of God does. It's just, even if, if it's a false moral law, it's still, or, or a shallow one, it's still accusatory. It still makes us feel guilty. You bet. Yeah. And so it's, it's interesting because I think a lot of people think as, as, you know, it's always a challenge to contextualize the Christian faith in the moment you're in. Right. And, and, and what's kind of, you know, in the cultural moment, like what are the Mm. stories, you know, that rub up against the gospel story. It's interesting because it seems that the Lutheran gospel you're, you're asking us to take the great tradition to take seriously Far from being less relevant, might be Mm -hmm. even more relevant today in the age of social media and virtue signaling and all these secular religions. That it's Luther's a master religious psychologist and understands. You know, if you if you give if the twisted human heart, you give it an inch, it'll take a mile. With (laughs) all these all this religiosity, and actually, it seems like it speaks a fresh word in in this 21st century context. It doesn't speak merely to a 16th century anxiety.
1: Yeah, Um, that's what I'm hoping. I mean, (laughs) some of us nowadays are less worried about going to hell than most people in the 16th century were worried about. And yet we have these uh, performance anxieties, uh, let's call them, Um, and especially Christians. But, you know, the the nuns and the seculars, they also have their performance anxieties. And uh, you're constantly measuring yourself by this one law or another. And um, what Luther wants to say is, um, well, just admit that you're not measuring up. And drop that despair of that, he'll actually say, use the word despair there, and take hold of Christ instead. And isn't it wonderful that our Lord is our beloved and he has these words of love to say to us? Well, let's believe that instead. And that, I think, um, for me, it simply frees me to live a life where I do a whole lot of work. Uh, there's all sorts of stresses. There's all sorts of stresses with, with loving people and doing the work of love. But I don't have to live with that performance anxiety. And that, that, the right question to ask is not whether I'm performing well, but whether what I'm doing is actually good for the people that I, that I want to love.
0: You make a point in the book that to some, especially to Lutheran theologians, I think is going to be controversial. But <laughs> you argue pretty well for it that for Luther, this justification journey is a, is a journey. It's a process. It's a process. And, be, and that you, you situate him with both Augustinian and Aristotelian influences. Mm-hmm. And so he says it's a process, but it's not a sort of, uh, it, it's, it's one where it's, the, all the higher and deeper comes from the again and again, from revisiting baptism, from start, you know, the the hardest to learn is the least complicated sort of indigo girl's idea. Like, it's not... Yep. Yep. And and he is really resistant to habits in these August, the Aristotelian idea that, well, this is how you become a good person. You learn, you know, the virtues, and eventually it gets easier and easier. And he's like, well, sure, for like, if you're talking about playing the piano, okay, but he says, you know, you say that it, for him, it, in relation to God, it doesn't work that way. Even if you try the habit thing, it's sort of like when people go on a diet, right? And then after the diet, they binge and they gain twenty They lost ten and gained twenty. That, that until you work on, on the actual uh, interior problem, which he thinks is the need for this uh, this word of promise. Until you until you hear that, and it's something you can't ever. Uh, possesses a habit, you you go to it again and again, the promise, and so, you know, you'll just binge, you'll, you, you'll yep. spiritually binge, you'll lose 10 spiritual pounds and gain 20. You yep. know, the, the, this, the, the process is about revisiting again and again, I right. belong to Christ, I'm baptized, what right. he says is truer than than, 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 my, own than, than my own feelings. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, right, it is a process, but it's not a habit. And that, I think, makes the crucial distinction. Um, it, this is partly very technical, but but if you know... Aristotelian philosophy, you can recognize the process language everywhere in Luther. He's constantly talking about justification and faith as processes. But he never talks about justification by faith as a habit. Uh, and a habit is a very – is another Aristotelian term, which this is the part of Aristotle that that uh, Luther rejects. He thinks you know we can make habits as musicians and develop the skill, which is a habit of this in- – a habit in-, in Aristotle is this intelligent sk- habit, like a skill or a virtue. And Luther says none of our skills or virtues are enough to justify us in God's sight. So what we don't – what we can't do is make progress and then say, oh, I've gotten really good at this right? Like a good musician, I've gotten to be a spiritual virtuoso, right? My my Christian life is really spiritual virtuosic. I've got all the good habits to be a really good Christian, because that means you're resting on something in yourself. What you rest on over and over again is is square one, right? Baptism, the gospel, you keep going back to Christ. When you do that, every time you go back to Christ, you're building up faith. You're saying, oh, my God, I thought I was such a good Christian, and look, I'm not such a good Christian. I'm awfully—sometimes I am just a crappy Christian. I confess this every Sunday when I go to church, right? We have this confession of sin. So you have to keep on going back to Christ as your Redeemer, and that's how you move forward, right? Is, is this continual going back to square one rather than building up a habit that you can trust in and say, oh, I've got this love and faith and joy in my heart, and that's how I know.
0: And this— this journey that you talk about—it's interesting because Luther shares this with the tradition in the sense of you know for Augustine, for Aquinas, for Luther, the the journey is one which you know it, 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 you're you're being you know this idea that salvation comes at the end of it, right? You're you're on the you're on the journey, uh, and yet the way to assure yourself—I mean, it's interesting because. If you say, "Well, how will I know at the end I'll persevere?" You know, it's it's almost like an, it. I've heard people in recovery communities they say, "Well, how are you staying clean or sober? One day at a time." So, one day at so time. you don't think like, "Well, in 20 years, what's good?" No, what, you go you go to the meeting. It's one day at a time. You hear the assurance. So for Luther, it's kind of like that's the wrong question. Just focus today, like one day at a time. Let tomorrow will take care of itself, as opposed to the Calvinist tradition, which says, yep. "Well." Yeah, let to work it out. If it's all grace, so it means God knows who's saved, and there's got to be elect and reprobate. And if I look far enough in my heart, I'm going to see if I'm a sheep or a goat. And, and, and that sort of internal speculation is, is where tomorrow is not left to itself. And that, you think, gets you into more problems than it solves.
1: Right. That latter, that second... Approach um, is developed in the Calvinist tradition, and it's what is the foundation of a whole lot of later Protestantism. And it's based on what I call Calvin's radical innovation in the Augustinian tradition. It's what makes Calvin different from uh, previous believers in predestination. You know, Luther and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas all believe in predestination, but they don't think you can know that you're one of those predestined to be saved. Um, and the technical term that for that is. You, you 're elect right which is, means you 're chosen, which is, so elect and predestined and chosen are all equivalent terms if you could know that you 're elect or predestined then you you know you 're saved Augustine at the beginning of this tr- tradition says quite explicitly you can 't know that how could you possibly know that you 're going to persevere in faith to the end because you do have to to endure in faith to the end and that's going to be predestined. Yes, it is it's predestined. But you can't know you're predestined. You can't know this is going to happen. Think about this. You make a decision for Christ today. Does that mean you can't undo it tomorrow? No. You can lose your faith. You can abandon the faith. People
0: do. You know, we have a story uh, recently. Josh Harris, a pr- mm. prominent evangelical pastor, wrote that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Right. Left his mega church. went to Regent Seminary. Now he announced... Uh, a couple years later, he's getting a divorce, uh, and he's left the faith. And, and he was a prominent Christian writer and speaker. It, does, it
1: happens, right? It happens. So no one knows they're going to persevere, says Augustine. Aquinas agrees, and the whole Catholic tradition agrees. And Luther, I think, is with the Catholic and, and Augustinian tradition on this. Calvin has this radical innovation. You can know you're predestined to be saved. And the reason why Calvin wants to say that um, is not trivial. He wants us to know that we're saved. But you cannot know that you're saved for eternity unless you know you're predestined to be saved. If you're an Augustinian, to know that you're saved is to know that you're predestined. So how are you going to know that? Calvin will say, well, there's this internal call, he calls it. Uh, Later Calvinists will call it conversion. And once that conversion or internal call has happened, you can know that God has promised you salvation and and you're sure to be saved. How? Because you have true saving faith. And, and true saving faith is a different kind of faith from temporary faith. So Calvin introduces this, this strange term, temporary faith. And he's thinking not just that, you know, sometimes people don't persevere in the faith. That's obvious. We all knew that. But he's thinking that temporary faith is a different kind of faith from true saving faith.
0: But and- you can't spot it. Like, even a good pastor can't spot temporary faith, right? They're going to smell like a Christian. They're going to look like a Christian. They're going to feel like a Christian.
1: (laughs) Well, that's the Calvinist problem, right? This is Jonathan Edwards' problem in his treatise on religious affections. You can't just look in someone's heart and see they have true saving faith. And yet... You're supposed to have assurance of salvation. So you should eventually, says the Westminster Confession and other Protestant documents, you should eventually be able to see that you do have true saving faith, that that your faith is not the temporary kind. But that requires an act of introspection, assisted by the Holy Spirit, say the Calvinists, right? The Holy Spirit, with your introspection, is going to show you that you have true saving faith and not the temporary kind. Now... If you can believe that, that's a great assurance. You you, you now know that you're predestined to be saved. But if you have a hard time believing that you have true saving faith, if you look at your heart and say, I'm not so sure, then you're driven into a distinctively Calvinist anxiety. And I think that's the kind of anxiety that most Protestants end up having. Luther's anxiety is different. He doesn't think that we know we're going to persevere in faith to the end. So Luther's thinking, um, God has given me this promise, but he has not promised that I will persevere in faith to the end, right? He said, this is my body. It's given for you. So, you know, um, one day at a time, just keep on taking hold of that promise. If you keep on keep taking hold of that promise every day, you'll, you'll be fine. But there's no promise that you'll persevere. So that's his anxiety. Maybe God in his hidden predestination, the hidden God, as Luther will say, maybe the hidden God does not really predestine me for salvation, and he's planning to abandon me and let me go go into my own unbelief, because my own unbelief is always there, right? It, my unbelief is already with me. Maybe that's going to take over my life. Maybe God's going to let that happen. How can I know otherwise? Well, I don't have a promise that I'll persevere. What I have is the promise for today. This is my body, given for you. Lo, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. I can keep on hanging on to that promise, and that's going to have to be good enough.
0: Um, It does get back to the control stuff a little bit too, right? This is Luther's solution gives you very little control. And if love is the opposite of control, this is interesting because you can only let, you have to just take today one day at a time and let tomorrow take care of itself.
1: You're at the mercy of God. Yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, the way I I think of it is, is in a world of sin and death uh, and suffering, we will always have anxiety. And the question is, how will we locate our anxiety? What will we be anxious about? Most Protestants are anxious about whether they're truly Christians, whether they have true saving faith instead of the temporary kind. Um, that, I think, is the wrong anxiety to have. Um, Methodists, they have the anxiety about whether they'll lose their salvation because they think they have a present salvation, but they might lose it in, in the end. Um, that's a different dis- disagreement that Methodists and Calvinists have, and they've been having it for a couple hundred years. Luther's anxiety is, will I persevere in faith when I don't have any promise of of that? But I can always get the the promise for today. And then the Catholic anxiety, Roman Catholic anxiety is, um, I I know I'm a sinner and I'm imperfect, but is my sin actually a mortal sin? Because if it's mortal sin, that means that that it destroys the the new life in Christ that I got in my baptism, and that means damnation. Mortal sin is damnable sin. Everybody in hell is is in hell because they had mortal sin. So everybody has anxieties. And the question is, you know, what's, what's the anxiety you should have given what the gospel is? And the way Luther sets it up is the thing you should be anxious about is whether Christ is telling you the truth. Because he says, this is my body. It's given for you. Now, is he lying to you? No. Good. Now you can believe that Christ has given his body for you, that he's died for you, that he's shed his blood for you. Luther wants to always put you in a position where the crucial question to be anxious about is whether God is true, whether he's going to keep his promise. And once you're in that situation, then you can say, ah, okay, God always keeps his promise. That's what I have to hang on to. What he hasn't promised, he has not promised that I'll persevere. But he's, he's always got the promise there, so I can always go back to it. So here's an, an- analogy. Um, when, I, um, when I believe my wife's wedding vow, when I, and when I— um, when I try to live out my wedding vow, um, does that guarantee that I'm going to be faithful to my wife for the rest of my life? Well, I've promised, but being since I'm not God, it's not, it's not a guarantee that I'll keep my promise. But every day I have the freedom to return to that promise, right? And if I fail to to keep my promise to my wife, if I'm mean to her, for instance, right, let's set aside worse ways of of breaking the promise. But if I'm not kind to her, which means I'm breaking my wedding vow if I'm not kind to her, I can always go back to that promise because she is my loving wife and she'll actually forgive me. So um, it's like that. That promise is always there to go back to, but you want to grow deeper and deeper in, into the truth of that promise, which you will sometimes fail, but you can always go back to. What you don't have is a promise that guarantees you that future. There are certain kinds of guarantees that you don't have. And that means also there are certain kinds of certainty that you don't have. And that's hard to live with, but that's, that's living in a world of time and change and suffering and sin and death.
0: It's interesting, Leslie Newbegin, the great messiologist and kind of Christian intellectual, wrote this great book. I think it's the last book you wrote. In his life, uh, it w- it's about uh, it's called proper confidence, and it's basically mm. about fa- the subtitle is faith, doubt, and certainty in in in, in the in Christian discipleship. And the first chapter is faith is the way to knowledge. The second chapter is doubt is the way to the truth, and the third chapter is certainty is the way to nihilism. <laughs> and, 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 okay. I, I wonder, like in, in the intellectual life and the spiritual life, is if there's something about that if 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 as finite, fragile. And, and fallen creatures, that certainty is just something we're not, it's way above our pay grade. And, and, and it's what we want because we feel like it will quell our anxiety. But really the promise uh, is what, you know, it, in the intellectual life and the spiritual life, it, it seems like certainty is, is a poison pill that looks a lot better on the front end yep. than on the back end.
1: Yeah. And that I think applies to Luther as well. Um, I think there's a kind of certainty that we legitimately have, which is the certainty that God will keep his word. Right. But that's a certainty that, that rests in God. It's up to God to keep his word. And we can, co- we can put confidence in that. Um, but we can't prove that God is someone who will keep his word. Right. We can't prove that we have the certainty we wish we had. Um, it's not a matter of proving stuff. It's a matter of holding on to that promise, right? And the promise doesn't doesn't offer a proof. It doesn't offer an argument. It simply offers a promise. You hang on to that promise, and it's certain that God will keep his word, but that certainty is up to him, not us, up to us to secure, right? So the the urge to secure our own certainty, I think, produces, well, that's the poison pill, right? And um, the way that that poison pill works in Luther himself is worth mentioning because uh, this is, I think, the worst, the worst thing in Luther, is he wants a certain kind of certainty that he can't have. Not just the certainty of God's promise, which I think he's right to point to, but the certainty that I've got God's promise right, that my theological interpretation of the promise is correct. That those Catholics, they're going to hell because they don't understand God's word because they have obviously misunderstood the obvious and plain, perspicuous meaning of Scripture. Scripture's absolutely plain about some things, right? There's some obscure parts, Luther admits. But the crucial thing scripture is absolutely clear about, those Catholics, they're denying what's absolutely clear and absolutely plain in scripture. Therefore, um, they're they're lying against their own conscience. They know that what they're teaching is false because they can't possibly think that their teaching is true because it's so obviously true that my view is right because I can prove it, right? So you have all this certainty, which also involves condemning those who disagree with you because your certainty is based on what's obviously true and you can can prove it, and obviously they 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 must see it too because it's so obvious. So um, he he'll say horrible nasty things about Catholics on that regard, especially Catholic theologians. He'll say horrible nasty things about other Protestants, like Zwingli down in Switzerland. And worst of all, he'll say really horrible, violent, cruel, nasty things about the Jews. He says essentially, you know, they read the, the Old Testament. And they think it's not about Christ. Well, they're obviously lying. They obviously know that the Old Testament has to be about Christ. They know that. So when they say that it's not about Christ, they're just lying in their own conscience. They know it. So um, we need to make sure that uh, we kick the Jews out of Germany. We burn their books. We burn their synagogues. And if any Jew tries to praise God or pray to God, we should make it a capital crime. And he says all those things.
0: Is this where Luther, in some sense, his theological anthropology maybe changes when in in disputes in the sense of when you have this sort of i said modest kind of theological anthropology when you think human beings are really a really mixed bag on a good day that when you're consistent with that that makes you more patient with other people because you're like oh if 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 I could be a Christian who couldn't or gosh, yeah. I think of all the times I missed the boat so but then it's almost like in the disputes, he go Everybody becomes a lot more capable. Well, yeah, well, you know, you could see this if you just really worked harder at it. And I mean, that isn't that a challenge? Because I think if you really were consistent with that view of original sin and yep. and our own fragile, broken nature. It, you would be a really generous interlocutor, right? You should be. Yes, right. Um, and I think
1: this is a serious uh, intellectual but also moral failure of Martin Luther. Um, I, I went to talk about the Jews there in that last uh, little discussion because it's so obvious. His His anti-Judaism is so – so deeply cruel and wrong, and you wonder, how did it go off the rails? And I think that's because he missed something about the humility of faith, which which Augustine, by the way, Augustine gets this. This is one of the things where Augustine's better than Luther. Augustine associates faith with the humility of believing what you're told when God tells you to. Um, And that ought to be the basis of both love and hope. And I think hope here is the crucial virtue that Luther lost, because love and hope go together. In order to love my enemy, including my theological enemy, I have to hope that this is someone who can ultimately become a friend and not an enemy. So even if my theological enemy is someone who's undermining my sense that I've interpreted Scripture properly, undermining my theology, undermining my sense that I really know what, what God's promise is, and that's really what, what's driving Luther, right – these other, these theological opponents, these theological enemies are telling Luther that he's wrong about the gospel. Um, even if they tell me that, I can hope that this is someone that I can learn from. This is someone who can eventually be a friend and not an enemy. And that hope is what makes love possible. And faith ought to make both that love and that hope possible. And if it doesn't, then there's something wrong with your
0: theology. There's a, a Czech theologian, Tomas Halik, who, mm-hmm. uh, was became a priest under the Iron Curtain. He's Roman Catholic, and he's written books that have been translated in English on faith, hope, and love. And his, his one book is called Patience with God, and he uh. quotes in his an ellipsis by this uh, Coptic layperson Adele Bastavros, who was apparently an attorney or something. But he says this: patience with others is love. Yes. Patience with self is hope. Patience with God is faith. Huh. And, and then he says, you know, what he finds that a kind of contemporary atheism and contemporary fundamentalism have in common is they're fundamentally impatient forms of faith without much space for mystery. Yeah.
1: And without much, space, without much space for that hope that the person who threatens me, especially who threatens my theological understanding, who undermines my understanding of scripture, this is someone who I should hope for their salvation and I should hope God is going to make this person into a friend and not an enemy. And by the way, it may mean that I will have to repent and change my mind because I may have something to learn from this person. But maybe they have something to learn from me. But what we must hope in Christian hope is that the Holy Spirit is at work so that the two of us, even in our disagreement, will end up coming closer to the knowledge of God. And, and that's hard to see and it requires patience. And patience always involves the, the, the ability and the willingness to suffer. Right? This is a form of suffering. It's a form of suffering when somebody, uh, a theologian who's smarter than I am, uh, undermines my grasp of Scripture. That's a form of suffering, and I need to be patient in that because that ought to be an outgrowth of faith. Right? Is that even if some smart theologian undermines my my sense of what Scripture is, I can persevere because indeed Christ will keep His promises, even if I don't know how.
0: Is this something you know that theology has to give to? the wider intellectual discussion in public life. I mean, it's because it's interesting. We, we even though we have turf war in academia and, and we divide subjects discreetly in a way that seems artificial to terms, but we live in an integrated world in many ways. And and I wonder how as a theologian ah. do you speak to uh, in an interdisciplinary conversation still with people that are, intellectuals in all sorts of dis- disciplines that believe all sorts of things. I mean, how, how do you contribute in that conversation?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting way of thinking about a theological anxiety that's prominent today. Um, <laughs> part of the problem that theologians are facing is that theology is no longer a powerful and respectable discipline. Um Up until the Enlightenment, theology was the dominant discipline in every university, and the theologians, in fact, censored the works of of other colleagues in other faculties. But um, the with with the Enlightenment and the beginning of biblical criticism, that all changed.
0: Yeah, I mean Nietzsche was right about so many things, and one of them is that psychology will replace theology as queen of the sciences, right? Which we psychologize every discipline now. Right.
1: Well, in, in the eighteenth century, in nineteenth century Germany, it's probably philosophy. In America, it might be psychology, or maybe the social sciences in general, and, and all the number crunchers, right? Um, but anyway, theology is is not um, is not a respectable discipline for many folks, and. Um, Especially a theology that's going to be, uh, cleaving close to the great tradition is also going to end up being politically not respectable. And you can see that. Um, uh, people who are opposed to abortion, people who don't believe in same sex marriage, people who have, you know, traditional Christian views about sexuality are not going to be respectable people in most universities in the United States. So, If you're in that place
0: as a theologian... um, And likewise, you have people like Francis who will irritate uh, (laughs) traditionalists because he's talking about labor and the environment. I mean, oftentimes the, the, the... Fidelity, that kind of tradition—you have very few political bedfellows, right? Because you, you, while while you're getting somebody ex- excited in one moment, then the next thing you have to say is often hard to hear.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, this is fascinating. I mean, I have lots of friends who became Catholic because of John Paul II, and they're having a hard time with Francis. Um, and but they know that as Catholics, they're supposed to you know honor the Pope, so that's hard. There's a certain amount of patience and even suffering that involves. So I think in our current environment, theologians. Have to be willing to suffer with patience. The fact that theology is not a respectable discipline, the fact that uh, Christian ethics in any traditional form is going to be looked down upon and even traduced, uh, you know, sort of slandered as if it's a form of repression or a form of prejudice or a form of bigotry, which it's not. But. Um, it'll be treated that way, and um, that's going to require a great deal of patience and humility on the part of Christian theologians in particular, and, you know, conservative Christians in general. And I think that will be good for us. Um, those of us who are on the conservative side of theological issues,
0: we we need to learn some patience. Is that how you map yourself? Because it seems that it, it, you, I mean, you're in an evangelical college, mm. and, and yet you're, I think a lot of evangelicals, if they listened to you, they wouldn't say, well, you don't sound like, you you don't have an evangelical accent. You know, you don't, you don't, it's like uh, you know, listening for a Texas accent or something. They wouldn't think, you know, I mean, uh, you don't speak evangelical. Exactly. I mean, how do you, do you, is it a lonely place that you occupy because, Uh, because you you find yourself in center right (laughs) theological institutions and yet you're, you're sort of not someone that, just probably at home in mainstream evangelical culture and, yeah. and, and, and mainline culture wouldn't like fit you? I mean, is it a lonely kind of existence? Um, it is
1: a practice in some of that patience I've been talking about because um, uh, although I honor evangelicals, and I teach evangelical students, and I'm at an evangelical Christian college, or at least broadly speaking, um, I don't identify myself as an evangelical because American evangelicals have a, this conversion narrative where you become a Christian by making a decision for Christ. And I don't believe that. I think you become a Christian by being baptized, and, which is the standard Lutheran view and, and shared by Catholics and Orthodox. And interestingly, at, at my little institution, there's lots of people who share my views about this. So I'm not alone And lots of the theologically serious people at my evangelical institution are Catholics or Orthodox. Uh, But there's also theologically serious evangelicals there, too. So we do have um, a really good um, community of Christian scholars at Eastern University. And I think I speak for all of us when I give the motto, any Nicene Christian is a friend of mine. So in that respect, I got lots of friends. In terms of exactly where I am on the map, I uh, there aren't too many people exactly where I am. Um, although I am pretty happy now, in a group of, of people who call themselves uh, evangelical and Catholic, small e, small c, and I, I edit a journal called Pro Ecclesia, which is a journal of Catholic and evangelical theology, which is mostly attractive to Lutherans and Anglicans, but is very interested in talking to Catholics, Eastern Orthodox. We, we publish a lot of stuff by Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And, you know, as an editor... I'm publishing lots of stuff that I disagree with. Well, of course, right? But um, if you're a Nicene Christian, you're a friend of mine. If you take the, the Christian tradition seriously, you're a friend of mine. And we can have lots of friendly disagreements, and that's fine. The hard disagreements are going to be with the secularists and and the folks who want to drive a, a progressive agenda that are it, that's profoundly hostile to, to traditional Christianity. And that's what's going to require uh, patience and a bit of suffering on our part.
0: Alanis Tuxley once said that the world needs more psychological theologians or theological psychologists ah. and I think he meant that in a, in a sense, in a deep sense like a, a, of the theologians that could speak to the deep conditions mm-hmm. of the human heart and I, I feel like you make a great case for Protestantism in this Lutheran sense, making that contribution and, and, and I hope that uh, this, your book is widely read and that your tribe increases Thank you very much And Thanks for spending some time talking with me Yeah, My pleasure Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Phil for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, The Meaning of Protestant Theology. You won't regret it, I promise you. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.